0: Welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand.
1: And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff.
0: The side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing BrainTools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the BrainTools Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to BrainTools. This is episode three on fear. And fear could be construed in many different ways and it's definitely something that has a role to play in our lives every day, whether or not we realize and recognize it. So today we're going to talk about uh, some of the problems with fear, with chronic fear, how fear works in the brain and then run through some really great... Interesting- Sammy, it's a pop quiz. <laughs> oh
1: God. Sam, Oh God, pop quiz time. Sorry listeners, I just came in there just, you know... Sammy, I didn't want to prepare Sam for this. I feel really bad. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for those listening in, obviously Sam said we're talking about fear. What better way than to start with everyone's biggest fear, pop quiz time. (laughs) So what we're going to do, Sam, putting you on the spot. (laughs) Absolutely triggered. (laughs) Literally on the spot is what we're going to do is uh, I was doing a little bit of research, going through a few websites, uh, looking at the most common phobias. And as I'm sure listeners might know, phobias and fears have some odd names, some really weird names. So what we're going to do right now, I'm going to test Sam. I'm going to give him five different names and his job is to tell me what that fear is based on the long word that I give him. So what I'd like you to do is play from home as oh well. God. So I want you to try and actually get these as we go along. Sam, this is your worst nightmare. I know you're all about old Ed. Um, I'm bringing you back I'm, to some aid. I'm assessment, having man. a
0: fear response right now. I can feel my heart beating. I'm palpitating. <laughs> all right, hit me. Watch your okay, you Ready? Okay.
1: Fabulous. <laughs> okay, <we've> got five. <laughs> I'm actually really pumped for this. So the first one I've got for you, nice and easy. What is arachnophobia? Fear of spiders. Good. One point. One. One out of one. All right, We're gonna to go to number two, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you got the first one. Number two. What is thalassophobia? <laughs> Th- thalassophobia. Ph. Thalassophobia. Yeah, you're Fear doing really soft well, mate. Things, mate. mate. Da down. No, it's uh fear of deep water, apparently.
0: Ah, oh, <laughs> I have that.
1: You've got one out of two. One out of two. Uh, All right, your next one. You ready? Go on. Galeophobia.
0: Galeophobia?
1: Not definitely not pronouncing of, that right.
0: <laughs> fear of garlic?
1: Nah, unfortunately not. Fear of sharks. Legit. Fear of sharks? <laughs> very, very important. Uh Sam, I- you're 33% right now. You're failing. <laughs>
0: It's all right. It's just like university all over again. All
1: right. Number four, last ladies minute. and gentlemen, I hope you're doing a lot better than Sam. Um, number four, you're ready. Glossophobia.
0: Glossophobia.
1: Yeah. G-L-O-S-O. Fear of glossy things. Oh, mate, really? Now you're just not taking this seriously. Now you're literally doing one out of four. Down, It is fear of public speaking
0: claustrophobia interesting
1: yeah and a not- f- fun fact for you 1973 they did a-, a paper around public speaking and it was found that it was the most common um fear so to speak more so than the fear yeah. of death but at its peak fear of death is still the number one yeah okay that makes sense i'm gonna end with a very easy one okay go on <laughs> number five what is claustrophobia
0: Fear of being in small spaces.
1: Yes. There we go. Two out of five. Ladies and gentlemen, give him a round of applause. (laughs) 40% still look, you didn't pass, but uh, it's a, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, I hope you uh, can tally up your scores and I hope you did a lot better than Sam, but, I wanted to start off a little bit differently because it segues quite nicely into what we're talking about today, which is obviously fear. And so I thought um, what I'd start by doing is just really unpacking what fear is based on what Sam said um, because he was obviously experiencing that right then. I could see all the pupils dilating. I could see his heart racing. I could see him jumping. The sweat was very noticeable if you are watching the Zoom. It's
0: palpable. It's palpable.
1: But Sadie, to to just give you the the definition, fear. Fear is apparently... Here, it is a negative sensation with the body or an aroused state in response to some form of stimuli. Classic. I said the word "test," you were scared. It happened to me this morning, FYI. Saw a spider, and I just like literally lurch back. And it is a, a very clear response and an adaptive response. And for mm. those at home, last week we obviously were talking in well-being about chronic stress and chronic fear and how it's actually really important. There is eustress, which is the positive stress, and evolutionary. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, this is really, really important, right? When we were back in our hunter-gatherers days, just doing our thing, it, uh, if there was a threat nearby, like a tiger or something that was going to eat us, it kind of makes sense <laughs> for us to have a response that says, oh, no, fight or flight, we'll get to that later, there's a tiger. I'm probably not going to stay here right now. I probably need to go yeah. somewhere. Um, and that was the whole idea that uh, it was all about survival, right? If we followed natural selection. Um, but it's been really interesting to note that fear... As we've progressed and Homo sapiens have evolved, our technology has been so rapidly changing our environment, especially in the last 100, 150 years. And we've tripled our life expectancy past 100 years. We're the richest from an absolute sense economically, relatively not so much. Mm. And it becomes really interesting that our biological systems, our fear response hasn't actually caught up to the environmental change. And that becomes a really interesting case for what fear is like in the 21st century, Sam, which is, I know you talk, were thinking about the perfect environment or the perfect storm right now for fear.
0: So right. So right. We've adapted for the Savannah, um, but not the modern jungle, the concrete jungle of suburbia. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, to bring this up and I thought you'd find this useful. And that was a great segue but so would the audience, the fact that we're kind of, we live in this perfect environment for fear to overpower the brain. And what I mean by that is currently we are surrounded by uncertainty and ambiguity, which triggers uh, a fear response. It's the brain's way of dealing with a situation. It doesn't know how to deal with by uh, turning on that fear response, being ready to, to fight or flight, which we'll cover a little bit later. Uh, We're in a global pandemic. So, The other thing that's happening now in terms of news is you think about all the stimuli, all the information coming into your brain, and it's all negative. It's all threat-based. It's all about this constant perpetual pandemic threat that's out there, which is creating this perfect environment for fear to run rampant. This bad news every single day is creating this environment for fear to run rampant. And not only that, we're also living, Kieran, and I I don't know if you'll agree with this, but we're also living in the age of anxiety. For Sure. I I I mean, everyone is anxious these days. We all have things we're anxious about and anxiety is really a manifestation of fear, a specific fear context. Um, and it's just fear relabeled. So we're really in this environment where fear is able to, to thrive. Um, which is interesting because I know you looked at fear in the context of the 21st century.
1: For sure. And I think when we talk about, um, fear, we, you're so right in terms of the Savannah, like we're not, we're in, in the developed world at least. And I'm very mindful of, of saying that, like it's not as if we've got tigers in our room, right? It's not like we're facing existential threats every single day about we are going to die. But regardless, we still have those response, like the fear of public speaking, the fear of like interacting with people. Um, A lot of that social anxiety particularly is coming, coming through. And I suppose there's three questions that I do want to pose to the audience Um, that I think is really important to consider right now, which is like one, what are you scared of is the really important part to look at. And right now in the 21st century, what role does fear play in your life or should play in your life? And then third is how do we then overcome that? And I think that's what we're going to really deep dive into um, to get really practical on like how you can actually overcome fear, which is something that people wrestle with. And we wrestle with daily. Like to be honest with Sam, I know we were talking personally about our fears and like one fear I've got, which again is probably a lot of people's, like, I'm so scared of heights, which I know is not the existential part of that, but like, I'm so scared of it. I get close to an edge and I'm like, I need to retreat massively. What's the phobia for that, Kieran? Uh, I'm just going to, I'll just, uh just got to look that up <laughs> uh, right here. No, no, I mean, no. That no. Was <laughs> yeah. What about you? Have you scared anything?
0: Looks uh, looks scared of podcasting mostly is, is the number one fit. No, I'm I used to have a a massive fear of talking to strangers and we're actually going to cover a little bit later in this podcast and implementation I use, the brain tool I use to overcome that fear. Um, But right now, my my biggest one is I'm personally terrified of posting on TikTok, which sounds super weird. Why should I care? It's a social platform. It's a social channel. It's not for me, not because of being judged, but because I'm trying to get my videos right. And I'm so worried that I'm going to produce something that doesn't work for the audience. And it's not going to work for my brand, which is ridiculous, but that's my personal fear right now to open up a little bit.
1: God, so many deep and meaningfuls. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have 10 minutes in and we're really talking about yeah. deepest, darkest fears right now. Mine being hearts, uh, Sam's being TikTok.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a contrast. A little bit. My, mine's very 21st century. Um, And I, the thing is, it doesn't matter if it's, TikTok, you're afraid of and causing that fear response, or if it's height, that same threat response, that same fear response in the amygdala is going to be the exact same. And there are a whole bunch of problems with this, which we're about to cover in the next section where we talk about the problems of fear. Uh, What are some of the problems? with fear well i want to start off by saying this if you're at home even with the best training preparedness even exercising eating well and doing all the right things fear can still take over your amygdala can still be hijacked, which is where fear happens in the brain because fear is this really primal innate thing and and what fear is is it's an associative response to a certain context or stimuli. And what I mean by that is it's your brain seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, feeling something, and associating that with danger. And when that happens, there's a physiological response in your body where your body is now preparing itself. It's now preparing itself for that danger. And there are a whole bunch of things that happen. Um, a cortisol is released, which is the stress hormone hormone. Uh, through the secretion of ACTH, just a whole bunch of neurotransmitters as your brain prepares your body and your muscles to get ready to move. Adrenaline is pumped through your system. An important thing to know here is that these these fear responses you would have felt them yourself now, yeah, right? Okay. And so, with your fear of heights or with my fear of TikToks, you get clammy hands. Your heartbeat increases. The tension in your muscle starts to increase and you feel like your body is getting ready to move. Um, and it's it's kind of this response which people generally label as fight, fight, fight or fight. But that's not necessarily right these days. And Kieran actually has some really interesting research which might just blow your mind on this.
1: I'm, I'm chewing at the bit on this because as Sam saying, it's, it's so true. It's such an involuntary response. And it, again, I, we just want to reiterate. It's so important. Like it has been so important. Like if there is something dangerous, you do not want to die. So fear is actually your friend sometimes, but what they found very interestingly with this whole fight or flight business is that might not necessarily be the entire story. And Sammy, I want to talk to you about an experiment. 2018. Stanford. So Stanford have a a lab that's all about sort of fear and visual responses. Very, some very, very interesting work. And there's two experiments that I think the listeners and viewers and yourself, hopefully, will really enjoy. Now, what the first experiment was all about is they basically got mice, okay, in the box, right, Sam? I want you to imagine your room is a box and you're the mouse. I'm really sorry because it's kind of COVID-19 right now. This is kind of how it is. And I think you know that. So you're in there. Then basically what happened is over the box, they actually showed like a big shadow or a big figure. And the whole idea was to elicit the fear response in the mouse. And what was really fascinating about this, and Sam, you spoke about the amygdala, like the prefrontal cortex and the the amygdala, that interaction where obviously fear is in the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex for the ladies and gentlemen listening, all about the CEO of your brain, right? The rational thought. What was super interesting is that they found in nature, fight's not a thing. Like if it is, such a small proportion of animals actually fight. Right, but we've applied this whole idea that people either fight or flight. The reality is, what they actually found was two things it was freeze or flight. That was the most right. common response for these mouse to this particular thing, and learned over time, obviously, because exposure is really important. The more you expose a mouse to this thing, they learn it. If they don't get a bad consequence, it's okay. But that became really, really interesting to note that we might have got this whole axis wrong that like we might not actually be on the fight or flight axis at all. Like, I know freeze has come in oh. recently but you might have to remove fight altogether, which, mate, it's a bit interesting, uh, which I find. What do you think?
0: That's, that is like really, really interesting because we're obviously taught uh, if you do study neuroscience or psychology or any of those things that it's fight or flight. Everyone knows fight or flight, you know? That's what your body's doing, fight or flight response. Um, and it's one of those commonalities kind of thrown around. But this new research is suggesting that might not be the case. And I can actually personally attest to this. I don't remember ever being scared and thinking I'm going to lash out. It's, What's up? <laughs> it's, it's usually I'm, I'm having a fear response. I want to get out of that situation or I just panic and stop altogether.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was so interesting that they did a second experiment. So when I said uh, to the listeners and viewers at home that you are literally in a box, and I want you to imagine this, they actually replicated what they did with the mouse with humans. They literally got a room, scaled it okay. up. And they had humans inside it and what they've been using, which I've been so fascinated by VR, virtual reality is they actually use virtual reality to elicit some sort of fear response. So they'd see, for example, attack dogs or a shark, some of the common phobias that Sam obviously failed at in his test. Now the key thing, sorry, mate, had to had to give you a drive by there, but what was super, super interesting is first and foremost, obviously novelty is a massive factor in the magnitude of your fear response. Right? How new, how, di- how foreign it is, is really important. But what they found very, very clearly in this part of the brain, um, which I thought was really interesting, is you actually have sort of neurons that are linked with courage. So when they actually found that they had an electrode through the amygdala as well, and that if you actually pressed on certain neurons in this courage center, it made people more, more likely to stay there and actually freeze or I suppose confront what they were doing. But obviously when they pressed on the amygdala one, it was more likely to run and run away, which is really, really interesting. And the whole idea that this ties to is what Sam was talking about earlier. And we talked about in the wellbeing episode, which is this overstimulation of the amygdala, your salient center, your threat detector, overstimulation of that leads to chronic stress. And once it's chronic, that actually leads to a bunch of psychiatric issues, which is one of the biggest problems we speak about, anxiety, depression. Now, if you haven't seen the well-being episode or listened to it, I highly recommend you go, do, go through that. But what I want to pass over to you, Sam, just to give the listeners who haven't seen that, just a bit of an understanding of this whole chronic stress, this fear response idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely go listen to that episode like Kieran just referenced and stick around because we are going to talk about practical stuff that is coming up. But this chronic fear response actually has physical changes to the brain, which is really crazy. So what happens in a state of of chronic fear or chronic stress because the hormones are the same is parts of the brain responsible for learning the hippocampus, the hippocampal cells shrink. And parts of the cell, parts of the brain responsible for thinking, the PFC that Kieran alluded to earlier, which is responsible for all your really processing and high-level functioning, also shrinks. But the part of your part of your brain, excuse me, responsible for fear, responsible for that response grows. So over time, people who are chronically anxious or chronically stressed one and the same when it comes to the, the hormonal response. They get better at being chronically stressed and chronically anxious and chronically afraid, while also decreasing their ability to to learn and decreasing their ability to think,
1: which is really huge. Self fulfilling prophecy,
0: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's um and there's all these things that are happening at a, a hormonal and neurotransmitter level in the brain, um, which is why this response happens in the hippocampus and and the PFC. It's actually a protective mechanism, but. It basically just means that being chronically afraid or chronically anxious uh, has really like long-term repercussions for how you can think and learn new things, which leads really well into your your research you did around self-actualization and overcoming fear and the problems there.
1: Yeah. And it's a a really interesting point, ladies and gentlemen, just to, to sort of stop and prop, which is obviously give juice to the idea of this idea of chronic stress and um, the psychiatric disorders that come with it, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. What's a really interesting one to think about, though, these days is it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs talks about self-actualization being at the top, right, which is your meaning, your overall purpose in life. And because we've gotten so much richer, because we're satisfying in most parts of the world, those basic physiological and safety needs. We're getting to the point where we're sort of asking ourselves, what does this all mean? And I don't want to get so deep and meaningful, but this whole idea of living a full life or eudaimonia, as we said last time, meaning and purpose being really important. So Sammy, I want to give you a quote that I saw the other day. Um, And I'm not going to lie. It slammed at me like a ton of bricks. I just want to see if you have the same reaction. You ready? Hit me. Confucius, pretty wise man. He said once, Humans have two lives. The second starts when you realize you have one. Ooh. Mic drop. Deep. So deep though. Very right? deep. <laughs> but it hits you like that because you realize yeah. and you're sort of, sort of sitting there being like, hold on, what is Confucius trying to say? He's like arguably saying that we waste a lot of time, but we waste a lot of time in fear. Mm. And the key thing to understand is like, what are you actually scared of? And Sheryl Sandberg's leaning the former uh, Facebook CEO in her book, Lean In, she talks about this question repeatedly. And she's always saying, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? What would I actually do if I wasn't crippled by fear? And reaching that purpose, and I know this seems quite motivational, I don't mean to get all Tony Robbins on you, but the whole idea of like (laughs) discomfort is arguably where the most growth comes from. And this is Mm -hmm. where it becomes really interesting that this whole idea of discomfort, and they've done a bunch of research into this, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. While fear and pain, they're useful and they protect us from harm, we often get the causation wrong. Like our brain as a heuristic, we often get what is actually causing the fear wrong. So a really good example of this is public speaking, arguably you something know, that yeah. people really struggle with, and you spoke about that earlier, in that yeah. when we go up on stage we say, "I'm scared of public speaking." And what happens is you go on stage, again, self-fulfilling prophecy where you actually end up presenting to someone. It doesn't necessarily go well in your opinion. And you say, I'm not good at public speaking. I don't want to do it again. But you've actually got the attribution completely wrong. It's not that public speaking is actually causing you uh, the fear or the stress. It's actually the people not reacting positively to you that is actually causing that. You're actually worried about the external thing and that's the actual cause. But the public speaking itself is not the cause. And so this is where we have a tendency to overgeneralize our fear responses without really unpacking it. I know we're going to get to the idea of implementation, talking about CBT and really using our prefrontal cortex to engage. Like what am I actually scared mm. of? Why am I scared of? What does it look like? But I put yeah. that forward to be like, that's probably the big problem right now is like, what are you not doing that you should be doing? So
0: are you kind of, are you kind of saying here and probably really true today that we're, we're really, we're, we think we're afraid of the wrong things.
1: Yep. Spot on we so when i
0: was we learned exactly right because fear is associative it's actually fear conditioning that they, they call them fear memories where your your brain uh, learns to have a fear response to a certain context a certain simulator and in a situation that would be a public uh public speaking situation and the context is people responding negative negatively but then you assume it's the actual public that is so interesting that and is, it might, so
1: it might be really subtle, but I, I I can like, if when you really, really look down, it's that whole idea of actually analyzing why am I scared of public speaking, yeah. going one yeah. level deeper to the actual causative element. And that's what we're going to talk about in these brain tools that we implement is to actually get to those things that you, that would actually give you meaning where discomfort, you know, mm-hmm. is going to lead to that growth. Like obviously how do you get to that situation? But once you're in that situation, what do you do? And I think that's going to be really, really interesting as we move into obviously what overcoming fear and the benefits of doing so and actually how to get that done.
0: Yeah. Which I'm really excited for. We've got some uh, really unique brain tools coming up. So stick around. They're coming around soon, but that's super interesting and it leads directly into uh, a next seg way, which is, you know, the benefits of overcoming or mastering your fear.
1: Awesome. Now we're back, obviously, to now look at when we overcome fear, what is actually the benefit of doing so? And I know, Sam, if we overcome fear, it's a really, really important thing, but there's some really clear benefits that you've looked at on a real micro-specific level that I know you want to share with the audience. Hit me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about this because I've felt them myself personally. From a micro level, when you learn how to uh, quasi-control your fear response or to manage it more actively in the moment, you're able to do uh, so many more things because you can now take action. And when you think about fear, what it does is it's trying to stop your body from taking action. That's, that's what happens when your amygdala becomes hijacked, when your body shuts down and gets ready to uh, freeze or flight, not fight, as Kieran said, you, your body and your brain is being prepared not to do anything. So, learning how to overcome and manage this fear response or reduce its impact on you is really, really powerful in the micro because you can start to take control of some of those psychosomatic experiences you had, those fear responses where your body tenses up and you can't think as well and your memory doesn't seem to work and now you're stressing about a million different things. That fear response, being out of control in the moment is really, really powerful because it suddenly unlocks your ability to take action which leads directly into some of the personal growth stuff that I know you're about to cover here, and I'm really, really interested in.
1: Yeah, and just on that point, Sam, I think that's super, super interesting. That like that—that's the thing that everyone associates with—is those physical, really, really visceral feelings of stress. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the thing everyone sort of can associate with, like especially like, pre-race when you're doing something or anything like that. It becomes crippling, and I think that that sort of segues really nicely into a quote by a guy called George Washington Um, and I think it sums up where we want to get to as a community pretty quickly, which is everything you've ever wanted is sitting on the other side of fear. I'm going to repeat that. Everything you've ever wanted is sitting on the other side of fear. And I think the key thing to be mindful of is that personal growth, that motivation, that focus, that eudaimonia that is on the other side of fear is a really interesting to think about, but it's so hard to see. Like it's so hard to see the benefit and the good of going through something that so very clearly visually and viscerally feels uncomfortable and feels bad but it's that whole idea of like no pain, no gain. Right. And so the question you got to ask yourself is how do you actually, what tools can you use in order to actually go through that experience to get to get to the other side? Um, And how do you tame that inner voice in your head that says, don't do this, don't do this. And how do you say, shut Mm. up? I'm doing this.
0: And uh, that's, that's such a good quote. And what tools can you use? Well, lucky for you, we're about to share some tools (laughs) with you. Um, That brings us into our next section, uh, implementations, the brain tools section. This is the part of the show I know you've been waiting for, the practical implementable brain tools that you can use today to start conquering your fear, to manage it, to really mitigate its effect and impact on your life. And Kieran, I know you had some a context to how these brain tools work and, and help understand people why they work. So maybe it's best to start with that.
1: Great handball, Sammy. Yeah. I think with the, the brain tools we're about to give you, and I think it's the same context as to last week, this whole notion of neuroplasticity. And I was mm-hmm. doing a bit of research for this episode. And there's this guy called Dr. Andrew Hubbardman. He was actually the person that's sort of leading the Stanford team. And he has this, awesome phrase that I think Norman Doig would love when the book, you know, the brain changes itself and it's called self-directed adaptive plasticity. Now it sounds really wanky. I've got to be honest yeah, with you.
0: Sounds- <laughs> Break that <laughs> down a little bit. That's, that side is complicated.
1: So all it means is you can change your brain by taking action. And, and the key thing is that inaction is, is not actually the way that you want to go about this. And you've got this whole idea of controlled exposure to fear stimuli, as you said, which helps you update your neural architecture. And I think we've been constantly convinced that when you're an adult, you can't change your brain. It's false. You totally can. But the barrier to entry to changing your brain is a lot more difficult because you've got a lot of preconceptions. And I think the key thing here to understand is the difference between what you think is real versus what actually is real. And a way I normally try and think about it is you want your actual, what actually is minus what you think it is to be zero. That means that you're idea of reality is at base level one. And when you do this, you have a really clear understanding of actually changing and having control over what you're going to do. And that's the classic case when it comes to fear is Seneca. One of the, one of the greats, I know you love him, Sam and listeners. If you haven't Seneca's letters of a stoic are great, all about stoicism. If he says, and I'm going hard on the quotes today, if you would not have a human flinch, when the crisis comes, train them before it comes. By Seneca, And this whole idea of simulation, of practice, of exposing yourself to things means that when the time actually arrives, it's okay. It's normal. That's why in the military, as an example, it's simulation after simulation after simulation. And I think that's where I want to pass over to you, Sam, in terms of your first brain tool, which is incredibly practical from an identification point of view. So I think we dive in.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's something the Navy SEALs always say is that we don't rise to our level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training, right? It's, that's just the way we respond as humans in stressful situations. And I want to talk about the first brain tool I'm going to give you is how you can control fear in the micro in that very moment you're experiencing it, doing something really, really simple. Write down your emotion. What happens is when you write down your emotion in the exact word, you pull away resources away from the brain responsible for fear, the amygdala, and you shift them to the prefrontal cortex and the language areas of your brain, the language processing areas, Broca's and Wernicke's area, and it actually reduces the fear response. And they have done some research on this where they basically got a whole bunch of people into a lab. Um, And they stressed them out. They gave them really stressful stimuli, like uh, really scary images, things they were afraid of. Maybe it was heights for someone like Kieran. And then they asked them to write down in their own words the exact emotion they felt. And the important part is to write down the emotion, the word for the emotion, where that was stressed, panicked, uh, worried, frightened. And what they found using uh, fMRI, scanning the brains, was activity in the amygdala, Reduced, while activity in the PFC and other parts of the brain's increased, and their their physiological fear response, which they measure by skin conductance, the the stress response reduced. Crazy,
1: crazy, crazy. That's massive. Because what you're saying, which I find really interesting, is that just the simple act of noting the emotion Mm -hmm. means that, like, it's almost as if your PFC, your CEO, is being engaged that through that act of writing, which means that, as you said, it's sort of increasing mm-hmm. the activity in that part of the brain. And then oh, and the CEO, the bouncer is taming the limbic system, the, the animal that sometimes runs wild.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's such an easy one to do. This is the brain tool when you are feeling stressed or when you are experiencing a fear response, get out a piece of paper, get out a pen and in your own word, write the emotion down. And that process of turning the emotion into language circumvents and shortcuts and short circuits the fear response. So that's my first one, which actually leans really well into your first brain tool, which is all about words too in a different way.
1: For for sure. And I think my first one as a high level is to document all the stories that you tell yourself. Mm -hmm. And Sam, I think it was a really interesting point. You talk about emotion. And as Mm -hmm. we're talking with the listeners, you've got to ask yourself like, how does emotion manifest itself? And it normally manifests itself through story, but the story is not that we are just tell other people, but the stories that we tell ourselves. And I'm I'm a quote machine today, Sammy, but Richard Feynman, um, who I love mobile prize uh, winning laureate again, he said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest to fool. And that whole idea of self delusion is really, really pronounced. We tell our stories, self stories, That obviously based on this emotion that convinces us of not taking action. And it comes that self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling prophecy that leads us not to do anything. And so to get really, really practical, if it's take Sam's idea of noting the emotion from a recognition standpoint, ask yourself, what stories do I tell myself based on fear? And mm. to get really practical, and I can share this with you, I've started uh, recently with one of my mates, Ollie, who I'm reconnecting with in Melbourne. And he introduced me to this whole idea of IFS and it's called internal family systems. For those that haven't, um, don't know much about it, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's just basically a form of uh, therapy. Um, and it yep. basically posits that you, the whole is made up of parts and those parts are personalities and you want to talk to those individual parts. So for me, one of my individual parts I've got is the analytical part, if you haven't noticed already, which is this clear, like, you know, what Sam's laughing because he you notice know, in our meetings it's like kieran your you bloody robot what are you doing analyzing everything
0: you guys, you guys should see the google docs we have The, <laughs> the analysis is incredible
1: but I, this whole idea of ifs and the principle i want to give you mm. practically is find a person that you trust genuinely trust and actually schedule into your calendar every single week for 30 to 30 minutes maybe to an hour And actually speak about the stories that you might tell yourself. And I've done this with Oli over the past two weeks. And over the the first one was a bit awkward. The second one was so much easier because I got used to the discussion point. But that self-awareness feedback loop of actually saying, hey, what I think is versus what actually is, is so far removed that it gives you that context to be like, hey, maybe this story isn't beneficial to me. Maybe it's based on fear and the fear is all inside my head. As Naval Ravikant says, it's not peace of mind, it's peace from mind. And I think that becomes a really important tool that we can link, hopefully for you as listeners, noting the emotion, but looking at what the story is that is uh, manifested as a result of that emotion.
0: Totally. Can I add a tiny bit of color, com- uh, color commentary to that? Some context. So. so self, you talked about self prophecies and self-fulfilling prophecies there is actually a brain mechanism that lives inside your head that make these a reality. And it's called the reticular activating system or the RAS. And what its function is to do is to confirm evidence of things you already believe or think. So as Kieran says, if you're having these fear conditioned memories, responses and thoughts or narratives, your RAS will look for information that confirms these exist. It's called confirmation bias. There's a whole bunch of research on it. And this is why it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because your brain starts to discredit information that disagrees with this viewpoint that says, no, Kieran, you're not afraid of this while actively seeking out information that says, yes, Kieran, you are afraid of this. And that's where the perpetual cycle comes in. It's not, it's not us talking about it. It's a function of your brain, the self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Super, super interesting. And I think, I think it's really important that we note on this one that sanity and I aren't psychiatrists and we're not psychologists Mm. and we're not going to sit here and say that you should do this to solve something like post-traumatic stress disorder, right? There's obviously professionals for that. I think where we're coming from here is in the moment, in the everyday capacity, um, using it as a tool or having it as a tool or mechanism that you can use as opposed to saying, this is going to be the silver bullet that solves some deep rooted problems. And I just want to, I know it's a classic disclaimer, but I want to be really yes. mindful about that for Love people that are, that are listening to say that we're not, this is not medical <laughs> advice and this is not psychology <laughs> advice. This is just what's worked for us. If you need help, go
0: and get help. Yep. We are, we are, we're not professionals in this space. We're just suggesting a couple of things you can do that are practical to help in the moment or from the research uh, and, and whether or not they work is going to be dependent on you and how you use them. And if you do need help, I encourage you reach out, get therapy, get professional help because it'll be much more tailored to your situation. But I want to talk about my next brain tool, number two, which was brain tool number two and related to my own experience and situation. Um, and it was exposure therapy or brain tool two, baby steps. And the idea behind this one is whatever you're afraid of, you want to expose yourself in small, tiny ways that don't induce a massive fear response to that stimulus and to that certain situation or environment. And over time, increase your exposure. And what this does is it kind of rewires your brain and retrains your brain to decrease that, that threat response in response to this situation or circumstance. And I'll give you a personal example. I'm ready. I used to be terrified of talking to strangers in public, It made me really nervous. I was that little boy who wouldn't even talk to a cashier. I'd get my sister who was two years younger than me to go in and order for me. I couldn't call up shops. I I really couldn't engage with people who I didn't know. I was terrified. Um, And I knew this was a bit of a problem for me. So when I started going through university and acknowledged that, hey, this is definitely not a way I can go throughout life. I don't have someone there all the time to talk to random cashiers for me. I started using a bit of exposure therapy, which is based in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a really well-established discipline. And I started getting small bits of exposure. So maybe it was a couple of words exchange with a cashier or someone I was talking to at a shop front. And then I'd expand that out to a couple more words the next week uh, with some people uh, at like a bus stop or a train stop. And eventually over time, I exposed myself to the point where I was having casual conversations with people I'd never met. And I went from being terrified of talking to someone on the phone who was taking my order, which is not a stressful situation for 95% of the population to being able to talk to almost anyone in any situation purely by exposing myself in baby steps to that situation, which was causing me stress.
1: That's huge, mate. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you and level. I didn't know this, but like, no, so it's pretty, do- it's pretty nuts to think like we're doing a podcast now we're having conversations. I seen you interact with other people and the fact that this was mm-hmm. something that was pretty crippling for you, it, it really surprises me. And I think that raises a huge point, which is like, we don't just because people have an outward appearance doesn't necessarily mean that's consistent with what's going on inside.
0: Totally, totally agree. Um, and I, I know this to be true with so many people I know who appear externally confident but are often dealing with debilitating fear or anxiety um, as I was in that situation. And this really leads into how you can expand that fear. So my brain tool is get exposure over time, baby steps, but expanding out what you're comfortable with. Kieran, did you have a brain tool for that?
1: Oh yes, I do. And it links so nicely. I don't know. We're sinking. We're sinking. Um, My number two is, uh, I'm going to talk about Seneca a bit as well, but it's to practice discomfort once a week. Mm. And I think what Seneca in his letters talks a lot about is that poverty is both a mindset and a condition. And he talks a lot about the conditions or the environments of what poverty is. And he's got a quote here. Cause I don't want to, um, I don't want to just get it wrong and I need to attribute it to him. But he basically says, um, set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare with coarse and rough dress saying to yourself the while, is this the condition that I fear? And I think that is so interesting that he would practice, poverty, if you will, every single week. So he, would, yeah. he wouldn't sleep on his bed, for example. He'd sleep on the floor. He'd wear the scantiest clothes and ask himself that if this is meant to be the worst situation, the worst situation or one of the, how bad actually is it? And again, it's that whole idea of correcting what you think it is versus what it actually is. Mm. And to get really, really, really practical, you need to just be mindful of the mind, the way your brain plays tricks on you. Now to get super practical on how you could do this, um, for me from personal experience, I remember trying this when I was really getting into stoicism and all I do to start is twice a week, I'd sleep on my floor. Um, and instead of my bed, I'd sleep on my floor and I would literally just right. get used to that and realize, Hey, look, maybe my neck hurts a little bit, but this isn't that bad. Right. And then I'd went a yeah. step further and instead of wearing like some nice clothes, sorry, mum, And thank you very much for getting them for me. But I would just literally just wear the same set of clothes over and over and over and over again. Um, just because like, Hey, if I only had two, this set of clothes and I had to wash them, I can. And I think getting experience with an alternate reality that might seem uncomfortable from a distance, but actually when you come to it and you're right near it, it's not actually that bad. And I know this might seem like coming from a very privileged thing It's like, we've got clothes, we've got all these things. There's a lot of people in the world that don't, but I think practicing that deliberately and to get practical, put that as a theme on your calendar. So quite literally putting it as a theme on my calendar is like, I know this is going to happen on a Saturday or a Sunday, pick that day that you do this. And I think that then extends to something that Sam and I are thinking about for the Brain Tools community, but is sort of the idea of a 30-day discomfort challenge where we actually seek things that make us feel uncomfortable and we do it obviously as a community together, but it's a frequency part. What gets scheduled gets done. So if you do have something that you want to make you feel uncomfortable, put it in your calendar. If it's, you're going to actually do it, put it in there and practice it because as Sam said, over time, it's really important the actual act itself. And then what becomes important is the frequency. So to bring the the tool together, I suppose, is to practice that fear, practice that discomfort every single week because that exposure of a time makes your expectation and reality go to zero.
0: Crazy, crazy. So it's just like expanding out your fear comfort circle, so to speak, deliberately by
1: scheduling it in. Spot on. Spot on, Sammy. And uh, yeah, hopefully then on the other side. As we say, the good stuff is on the other side of that discomfort.
0: Oh, yeah, powerful. I'm, I'm really, I really, I like that. I've had that uh, as my own personal experience of, of practicing discomfort. I actually used to do fasts for a while. I do three-day water-only fasts. And I found afterwards, um, I just, I was more confident in myself over time because I knew I could do something as uncomfortable as
1: that. Makes so much sense, mate. And to pass it on to you, I know you've been gnawing at the bit on this one. You came, oh, yeah. So just for the listeners, Sammy came to me with this be like, Kieran, I've found something really recent research-wise that you're, it's going to blow your mind. I haven't heard it yet. So he's been talking it up big time. I know he's going to deliver. But Sammy, what's your third and final brain tool that you want to share? Oh, yeah.
0: Them? Brain tool number three. I'm so excited for this. It is really recent research uh, and it's called counter conditioning and what it means. And that sounds like a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo, but here's the brain tool reward yourself for exposure to the thing that induces you fear, but with just a picture reward yourself to what causes you fear with just a picture. And I'll tell you why, because research found that doing this short circuits, the brand's brain's fear response and replaces it and reroutes it towards a reward and there's a research that was done in, in 2016 by Kazumi et al um, in the nature of human behavior. And what they did was essentially they took an image. They took this photo and they, the image basically represented the, the fear inducing uh, stimulus that the people in the experiment were exposed to. And they just took a photo of it that didn't have the same resonance and it only kind of similarly replicated it. And they gave these people over five days, they gave them rewards for seeing this stimulus. And in, in this example, it was a red circle. They, day one, they saw the red circle, they got a reward. Day two, they saw the red circle, they got a reward. Day three, by day five, when they showed the threat with the stimulus, they showed the image which was threatening, not the red circle, but the actual image itself. And they measured perspiration, skin conductance and other measurements of stress and fear. The threat and fear response had just dropped Drop yeah. through the floor. And these people, all they've been doing is looking at a photo and getting a reward. Crazy. It's so that they, they called it hacking the brain to overcome fear without exposure to that thing causing the fear. And here's the practical way you can do this. If you're afraid of something, whether that's, let's use spiders as an example. If you're afraid of spiders, what you could do is look at just a photo of a spider or maybe even a cartoon spider, something that doesn't cause you a massive Threat or fear response, and reward yourself for doing that. Eat a piece of chocolate. If you do this over time, what happens is you rewire your brain circuit towards reward of that threat stimulus subconsciously, subconsciously without even having to feel afraid. Um, and I'll, I'll just quickly give you how I'm doing this personally. Thanks. I told you I was a little bit afraid of posting TikToks. What I've been doing is I've been watching people recently. Post TikToks and record TikToks. And then after watching that, I just eat a piece of chocolate. And I've found that now when I go to record a TikTok and post it, I have this weird thing where my brain thinks, oh, wow, this is good. I'm probably going to get a piece of chocolate. Like there's this reward, reward response in my brain. And it's making it so much less scary for me, which is crazy.
1: That's awesome, mate. Uh, one thing I'm going to say, mate, we one of us has already got diabetes, we don't need two of us having diabetes, all right? True. So, <laughs> but the premise is very interesting. That whole idea of exposure through a visual on the pairing of reward, which it shows how very clearly, or, mm-hmm. and I, I'm mindful of conjecture, but there is a lot of research done in the role that dopamine plays within the fear response uh, in the limbic system. Yeah. So, this whole idea of reward and fear being, um, yeah, a very clear learned sort of you know relationship or dichotomy is. A really interesting. One. I think that's very, very, very interesting.
0: So crazy. And if I can say it in, in one sentence, right, this brain tool is figure out what you're afraid of. Look at photos of it or a visual representation that doesn't make you afraid and give yourself a reward and doing that over time, rewires your brain So you'll be less afraid of it and you don't even have to do anything.
1: That's huge. I love it,
0: which is crazy. And I know it kind of leads into the last brain tool you have for us, which I'm really excited about. And it's more about systems.
1: Spot on. And I think the third one is trust, create and trust systems with people not your willpower. Now, I know that's a long-winded one, but I'm going to break it down, okay? Please that, give us the uh, details. And in preparing for our fourth episode, Sammy, which uh, is going to be on habits uh, and sort of mm-hmm. routines, I was reading Atomic Habits by James Clear in preparation for it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be talking about that in our next week's episode, so look out for it. And he's got a right. quote that is so, so similar to what you talked about with the Navy, Navy Seals, but it just, again, it hit me quote, I think we need a quote count. I think this is quote 10, but
0: yeah. We should get paid by quotes. I love some affiliate marketing quotes. If anyone does that out there, we are open to opportunities.
1: So the quote is as follows. People don't rise to their goals. They fall to their systems. That's by James Clear. And it, and it really break thought about it like, which is that, sorry. Can you break that down a bit? I'm going to break it. So we okay. always have a tendency with this whole idea. Let's just take fear as an idea. We think about Uh, the ideal of where we want to be, right? And we think about setting all these goals. Like I want to overcome this. I want to do that. But we don't actually think about how we could design our life so that we are, again, exposed to things and we're actually acting on that. So the classic question that I'm asking yourself is like, if we want to overcome a fear, there's two parts. What's the system that you can create? And that if, if you fall over, if you fall over and your willpower is not there, which again, I think people, a massive misnomer is to rely on your willpower a lot. Don't rely on your system what's the system that you can create? I'm going to get tangible in a second, but based on that system, then putting someone with that system. And that's what we call a social accountability. So for example, and and this is a nice leeway into next week, but Sammy, if I wanted to run as a really clear example, um, and I was scared of running, I was scared of the exercise and the response that I was doing. There's a really practical system that I can create, which is I can put my shoes right next to my bed, right? I might not mean I'll do it, but I'm going to increase the probability because going for a run is really hard. Putting on my shoes is not that hard right? And you talked about that baby step. The next thing I could do is I could set three alarms. The next thing I could do is I could get Sam, Sammy, we might do this, to call me at seven o'clock. And the next thing I could do is say, hey, Sam, meet me here at 7.15. And you start to introduce social accountability component. And if there's one thing we've learned about human history, and I don't think this is a great thing, but it is what it is, is collective collective sufferings a lot easier than individual suffering. And the whole idea of suffering together, right? And having someone there that can guide you is actually a really important part. So for all these tips we've spoken about involving someone that you trust in the process means that if you fail to reach for the stars at the very minimum, your mean, your average, your systems get you there. And so you want to make sure you think about it. So getting really practical as a final one, once you've done that system and designed it, which we'll talk about next week, you track your progress. Mm. It's a wall tracker. It's, ticking off so you have a positive feedback loop that, hey, I'm actually doing this over and over and over again. It could be just a calendar where you do X and you do the Seinfeld method, right? Where you start to build up this momentum and hey, hey, presto, after seven times, eight times habit, you've broken down those barriers and yeah. hey, who knows, you might've overcome your fear.
0: That's so, that's so powerful. Um, and I've actually used this without even realizing I was using it in my own life. Um, so for example, I, I used to, uh, you know, the, the fittest I've ever been in my life was when me and a friend lived near each other's houses and we made each other sprint three times a week by just showing up at the other person's house. If I woke up before him, I'd show up at his house. If he woke up before me, he'd show up at my house. That's super interesting. Systems.
1: Systems. And like, is a, a final one on that public speaking. Like I've, I've been fortunate yeah. to train hundreds of people in public speaking based on the work that we do. And one thing that we've built into the system is to always make sure that people are preparing in pairs and that they're doing it in pairs. They're going back and forth. They build a relationship. So it becomes a safer space. Mm. And that's the whole idea and premise, which I know we're going to speak in another episode of psychological safety, which it it creates that safety net. So those, those tools um, that we've given, hopefully are going to increase the probability of you overcoming your fears. Totally.
0: And just to wrap up those tools and uh, cover them again, my three were one, write down the emotion you're experiencing in the moment to reduce the fear response Two baby steps it's called exposure therapy in cbt and basically getting exposed to what makes you scared in tiny little minute ways and stair step up over time response reduces that response and three uh counter conditioning or reconditioning which is look at an image the thing that you're actually afraid of something that doesn't trigger a big fear response and reward yourself for looking at it and
1: those are my three what were your three kids rapid fire three number one based on what I said, document all the stories that you tell yourself. Stories are a manifestation of the emotion. Document the stories you tell yourself so that you are aware of them and you can overcome them. Number two is practice and seek discomfort once a week at the minimum. Take the absolute Mm. bare bones, sleep on the floor, do whatever you will that is considered discomfort and you'll realize very quickly it's not as bad as it seems. And the final one, number three is create systems with social accountability. Don't trust yourself. And I mean that in the nicest way, trust your systems because mm-hmm. you'll always revert back to them.
0: Love it. Super, super powerful. Uh, I think those are some really great brain tools. People can start using today uh, as our episode, outro, to, to leave you with the 80, 20, what is the, the 20% you could do for 80% of the impact here? what's your 80, 20 for this week?
1: What do you think I'm going to go with? Oh, it's a quote shock 11. Oh yeah. <laughs> Shock and horror. Later. I'm really, everyone's going to hate me after this, but I just, I'm going to quote scream Henry Ford this time. I want to leave you with this listeners. One of the greatest discoveries a person can make. One of their great surprises is that they find that they can do what they were afraid to do.
0: Oh, powerful. I wish yeah. I had a quote like that. Yeah. I'm going to go with uh, my own self-created quote, which has nowhere near the eloquence of Henry Ford. My simple 80-20 is when you are feeling scared, witless, write it down, write down your feelings, write down your thoughts, your emotions, particularly label them because just doing this responses, just, just doing this reduces the fear response. So write it down. Journal. Here's a pen. Write it down. Here's <laughs> the pen. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again for another episode of brain tools. Really excited for, Next week's episode, Kieran, what are we talking about next week?
1: (laughs) I do know what we're going to be talking Uh, about next week. I've got this right. We're going to be talking about habits Uh, and routines and how you can obviously uh, build those uh, to live a better life.
0: Super powerful and super relevant right now. I know a lot of people in my network, a lot of my friends and family are struggling with their routines and habits, so disrupted. So that's going to be amazing. Uh, Look out for that coming up next week. And also come and join us uh, in, the, in our community, in our Brain Tools community, which you're going to hear a bit more information about just after this. And uh, that's about it for me for this week. Bye for this week. See you yes. later, guys. See you, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Brain Tools we've got three quick things to hit you with before you go. One, if you want to hear other brain tools, you can find our other episodes at the link below and on all podcasting platforms.
1: Number two, if you like this episode, then give us a review on iTunes or Spotify only if it's above four stars. And number three,
0: you can go ahead and join the braintools.mn.co community where we'll post a complete brain guide based on this episode plus a ton of other resources best of all it is completely free
1: cannot wait to see you next episode and until then bye for now
0: see you next episode